Ladies and gentlemen, the beat goes on. KHJ Los Angeles, the big 93. Hello, this is the real Don Steele. Join me on Boss Radio from 3 to 6 p.m. The real Don Steele, 93KHJ. I'm incredibly excited to chat with the sound team behind Quinn Tarantino's newest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Joining me in this conversation is production sound mixer Mark Ulano, supervising sound editor Wiley Stateman, and re-recording mixer Michael Minkler. I think just to start this off, I'd love to understand when you guys first find out about a new film, it obviously starts at the script stage. What's uniquely different how Quentin is writing, how he's thinking about sound and music that is going to inherently make suggestions or set your guys' sense in a certain direction? Obviously this film is a timepiece of the late 60s, so like that already has precedent, but what's uniquely different, do you think, how Quentin is thinking and writing about music? Each project over the years with him has its own unique um, underlying uh, emotion, really, and, and uh, this had a very special sensibility because it strikes me that the film's, at its heart, it's about acceptance and love and, and gratitude. And so, um, and it's also about a time or the idea of a time that has um, meaning for different segments of the society in different ways, but I think it has a special meaning for Quentin in particular, um, in that it's it's this this special this moment you know in 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 our history and world that he uh, strikes me wanted to you know kind of consolidate into uh, uh, an experience for those who both lived that time and those who didn't, but can connect with it. So I, that was a very, um, a very special thing because it's a contemporary time for us. And the music is really sort of, for me, the, the, the beginning, the doorway. Um, historically, it's always been the script and, and it, clarity in terms of what, what is where we're going. But um, in this instance, I had the music before I had the script. <laughs> Uh, with with a 50 gig uh, you know a set of uh, excuse me a 50 hour set of log tapes from KHJ as as sort of the you know uh, unspoken but present character in the movie and and, um, and and then and then reading the script after sort of digging through that uh, really sort of connected for me you know where we were where we were trying to get to with the film. For all three of you, how do you find the conversations in pre-production stages? Do you all three of you in, in the various departments all come together and have a discussion? Like, how would you describe pre-shooting of how Quentin likes to collaborate with with the sound team? It's it's different for each of us, but in our background, we've had times. You know, uh, Mike and I met in the pre-production on this, and Wiley and I've met on pre-production on other projects where it's a creative conversation about the possibilities in, indicated in the script and uh, uh, play, you know, playing with ideas about how we could approach this or that, um, mainly communicating, you know, in advance and then following up throughout the project with, uh, with, you know, uh, are we getting there or heads up about something nude got discovered on the set. Um, something's coming your way. Be, you know, be, be alerted to it. Uh, that, that, that's from my end. Let, I, let me not jump in on anyone yeah. else. Well, I, I'll jump in for a second, too. I mean, we're part of a, a group that gets assembled project after project, and uh, clearly there's a working shorthand uh, between us. 
you know, Mark's uh, role in, in pre-production is often to get ready uh, with uh, playback tracks and, uh, or in this case, it was to investigate the KHJ uh, material and the, the DJ stuff um, with the real Don Steele and Humble Harve. And, you know, we had discussions about how uh, and, and what playback tracks would be needed. And in that case, it, it also came to, to, to me to sort of help uh, bring um, some of the, the playback video that was on the TV, like the FBI episode. Uh, we needed to insert uh, Rick Dalton's name in instead of Burt Reynolds. So Rick Dalton was was inserted for Burt Reynolds, and uh, visually that uh, was also done early on in production, so it could be used as a playback track. So there's there's quite a bit that's informed by Quentin's scripts that uh, tells us really what we need to do together as a group, and uh, and it goes from there. Hmm. Well, Wiley, for you, I can imagine that you just have a treasure trove of ideas when you start off a project like this because of the time period. And, and there's obviously a specific sound, the technology sounds a certain way, vehicles, interactions, the world sounds specific. Uh, it sounds very specific. What was the challenge that was set by Quentin to you in terms of capturing that sound? Because uh, I think being authentic is expected, but then you guys take it a step further when it's kind of like this, not want to say fantasy world, but it, it's just like it's an homage to a, a time and a, a place that obviously people, you know, remember. Yeah, I, I think what inspired Quentin to make this film was that in 1969, uh, things in Hollywood were clearly changing. Uh, in, the late, in the late 1960s, it was really the kind of true grit generation versus the easy rider generation. And we had, you know, the passing of the torch between John, the John Wayne generation, uh, in True Grit, you know, to Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson, you know, with music by Steppenwolf and a whole different vibe in terms of filmmaking. And I think that's really what began the process for me and for probably for, for, for Mike and, uh, and you know, uh, was to try and understand what the 60s uh, sounded like and to try and make a film uh, that captured that feeling. So it wasn't about any specific um, particular category of background or sound effect or, or sound uh, design. It was really about trying to capture the spirit of that change of guard between traditional Western type filmmaking, which we have in our Lancer uh, episodes within the film and, uh, and the, the, you know, the era around the Manson family and, and rock and roll and KHJ radio. So it's a really interesting clash. Yeah. I want to jump into some of the specific scenes that I really enjoyed, which um, kind of right off in the, uh, probably the first quarter of the film, there's this setup of kind of Hollywood Boulevard and the neon signs in the evening coming alive. And can you guys talk about kind of crafting that scene? Because it, it, it kind of sets up, a, it, set, it sets the stage in my mind of what Hollywood is known for. The idea that um, Quentin was going to shoot in practical locations and uh, make a really sort of honest film about the period meant uh, having vintage cars, meant dressing and or shooting certain sets that uh, had still neon and, and the ability for us to sort of stage the production. And Mark can speak uh, to the complications of that and, and really the beauty of having all those assets. Uh, but those montages were largely driven by music. Um, with a peppering of sort of automobiles that were appropriate to the era. Um, we did some field recording and, and captured uh, eight different uh, cars that, that were um, given to us for a day from, this, from the production. Uh, but um, it's really a tribute to the visual look of things. First, I think Bob Richardson, 
uh, owes a huge debt of gratitude for being able to capture that look. And, um, and then onward from there, I think the, 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 um, the songs themselves came out of uh, Quentin's collection and had some really interesting uh, analog artifacts, uh, all almost exclusively from, from his collection and, and from two track masters. So, and Mike, you can speak to that too. Uh, when it comes to the music, uh, there was, that task was pretty much given to Jim Schultz as to how he was going to bring it to the mix. Uh, when I say that, uh, it's, it's because, uh, yes, Quentin has his, uh, library of of music that he he works from and but he also i think he had to pay for all or part of the khj library so his musical research was done as he was writing the script so he had a lot uh, so that's how he was able to incorporate everything every scene for scene shot for shot musically along around his dialogue so when they were cutting the film, uh, whatever master they were using at that particular time in the cutting room, that was given to Jim Schultz. Now, some of those masters are from uh, scratchy old 45. Some are highly compressed uh, AM broadcast. Uh, so sometimes the quality wasn't that great, but nevertheless, it was cut to the rhythm of those songs at that pace, those versions of those songs. And uh, so what Jim tried to do, what Jim did do, was provide four different versions of each song with various levels of, of cleanliness. But he could only successfully do that if it stayed in absolute tune and rhythm and, and punctuation of every single cut, right, right down to the, the, the milliseconds. I mean, Quentin will see something that's slightly off and, and it throws the timing of the cutoff or, or the, or the dialogue. So he, his work was to provide a, uh, you know, an original that might've been scratchy to a cleaned up scratchy version to a two track master, to a mixed down master. It was a, a remix that was done later in, in later years. And then provide that to us. He could make choices on the stage. We would enhance it by using Pentio and, and Halo or Enderverb and whatever other sonic little tricks we have up our sleeves uh, that, would, that would make it appropriate for each individual scene. And there's over 120 musical drops in that movie. And you're not really supposed to feel that there's the music being, being dropped right here because it's always being dropped. And and um, but it, it's part of the rhythm of the movie. If you just go with it, it just flows and flows and flows and flows and flows. Some big, some small, some whatever, uh, uh, however the music was used in any particular time, it was um, was contributing to the flow of the film and to the story. All uh, the lyrics and some of those are absolutely intentional. Uh, to provide a backstory to what his writing was all about. That's a great way to describe how using transition uh, music as transitions, sound effects car- kind of carrying over cuts. I, I feel like one of the um, other scenes I wanted for you guys to talk about was when they go to the Spawn Ranch scene and they visit the house and they're looking, Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, is 
looking for uh, the, the character of George Spawn. And like the tension that you guys build in a scene like that, just uh, inadvertently, there's music that's being played, you know, off a TV that like is playing into the scene. There's dogs barking. There's an eerie wind. Um, maybe we start with you, Mark. Um, talk about what how that was crafted from production side and then basically carrying that over to what the audience's experience is because the tension that you guys build is just, uh, it's wonderful. Well, you know, it, it's, it's really about the, this, the creation of an environment for actors. Um, a, lot of, a lot of what drives the bus is Quentin creating a, a universe for actors to exist in, you know, to create their characters in. And so as much as uh, is possible, he will have all the departments bring things in. Sometimes that's, you know, animals, it's, uh, it's, it's vehicle, it's, 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 it's in the wardrobe, it's in the set dressing, um, it's, in the, it's in the timing. There's this, just this idea that, you know, the more real that we can make the environment, the more uh, it will draw out of the actors, you know, in react as that as sort of you know a foundational uh, environment for for their characters to exist. So um, we had all those things there. I mean, many many days, fifty, sixty period vehicles, um, you know, uh, ten, fifteen dogs at the at the Spawn Ranch and horses, and um, and and then later, you know, uh, when those things happen organically, we'd capture them either simultaneously with think takes, but also capturing other pieces. Um, th- that I think is, is, you know, maybe a trigger or a catalyst for the kinds of, you know, uh, more specific and precise use of that environmental stuff for, 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 for Wiley and then Mike. So it, but it's always there from the front end from Quentin. It's, it's, it's also how he deals with the issue of, of uh, dedication to onset performance as what he wants in the movie it's it's really not really about sound as much as it's about you know um, capturing that organic sense of what the char- you know who the characters have become when he's experiencing them in front of the camera during takes. I hope that answered. That was great. Yeah, well, Wiley, what, what about for you? Well, the the, the Spawn Ranch scene is really um, a, a wonderful um, sound design opportunity. Quentin um, and yeah. Fred uh, Raskin. Quentin felt though that there wasn't a musical number that would do justice to the creepy horror of that place. And so very early on, um, he asked us to prototype that uh, with uh, sound effects and, and interesting sort of tension um, uh, enhancing uh, uh, beats. So uh, the the two main sound designers, Harry Cohen and uh, Sylvain Lassier, um approached it from very different um, uh, angles. And also Zach uh, Goheen, who contributed, I think, one of the more interesting things, which was uh, based around some recordings he made in Death Valley, which happens to be a place where the Manson family did live at one point as well. Uh, but he recorded some old air motor um, you know, windmills and things like that. And so the combination of the kind of creepy textural stuff that uh, that Harry and Savon created, Harry working a little more conventionally as a uh, you know, with a uh, an S6 and a 5.1 system in his home studio, Savan working with a Kima Pacarina uh, sound designer. And that's an amazing uh, machine that does morphing and does all kinds of really interesting musical textures. Uh, but that combined with uh, some of the organic sounds and some of the production sounds, as, as Mark was saying, um, allowed us to rapidly prototype that scene into something so that uh, Fred and Quentin could really understand 
the time that it was going to take for uh, Cliff to get to George Spahn's house, to make that journey inside the house with the with the with the elements in, in of horror and, and surprise that that um, that were around every turn there. Um, but it uh, it's a scene that's largely composed uh, almost like score uh, or as a replacement of score because uh, the inability for songs to really carry that moment in in any way that wouldn't have, that would have been uh, um, more you know dramatically on the nose so. Uh, it was always conceived of from very early um, from a very early discussions as a as a scene that would be based largely on organic sound design. The wonderful thing about Quentin is that he does this as a writer. He he rewrites history, and with the final scene at the house of the murder scene, whatnot is rewritten in a way that uh, the audience really never knows how things are is a scene a dialogue scene is going to play out. Who who in the end is not going to you know leave the room alive? And in this case. It's another wonderful long buildup of setting up this kind of climatic scene. So, can you guys talk? Uh, maybe Mike, if you want to talk about just that final scene. I, I think I believe the track is uh, "You Keep Me Hanging On" by Vanilla Fudge. If that's right, that's kind of playing in the background. But maybe if you can kind of set the stage for how you guys orchestrated that scene. Well, yes, it is extremely long buildup to it. It's it's boy, it starts from the end of the Italian. Uh, montage section. So it's about four minutes in, in reel seven, and then it's about nine minutes in reel eight. So there was a huge long buildup, and he does it using a time reference. So at six o'clock, the guys came home. At seven o'clock, Sharon decided to go to dinner. At eight o'clock, this happened. And nine o'clock, this happened. At 11 o'clock, he's setting all of the people up in their proper place in time. So for those who know what occurred, that the Manson murders occurred shortly after midnight on August 9th, they are, they're glued to their seats because they're getting the time frame. Here we go. Here it comes. For those who did not see, uh, do not know anything about the Manson murders, uh, it doesn't mean that much to them, uh, those references, those time references. They just know something's happening. Something's coming, as in any Quentin movie. Something is going to happen. So he he reverses it, uh, or, no, or pardon me, reverses it. He alters it in his own way. He gets everybody to meet each other, and they make these and they make these decisions uh, to to alter the plans. And then the, when the plan changes, uh, they don't know what they walked into. And when they walked into Cliff and Brandy, <laughs> and and then uh, of course eventually Rick. And Francesca, and of course, too. they never make. And for, yeah, and sure. Francesca, yeah. <laughs> they they never make it to the man. Uh, they never make it to the Tate House. Right. Uh, I think was was going on there. Make no mistake about it. They didn't change their mind. I don't think to not go to the Tate House. They just wanted to make a stop along the way. Uh, bad choice. And that scene, which that fight scene, only lasts about three minutes. Right. But it's like it's jaw dropping. In, in how it's shot and how it's recorded and the use of everything is, is, is so brilliant and it's so funny and I've seen it over 200 times and I still tear up with laughter. Uh, Mark, for you being on set for a scene like that, how do you cover uh, these very aggressive, impactful moments? Yeah, what's your approach for a Quentin Tarantino fight scene? How do you like to cover it? Well, 
every shot's handmade, Michael. So uh, it, it really is what, you know, what the roadmap comes from the blocking, the initial blocking. We know what we're coming to do, but on the day, what happens in terms of physical, you know, or organization of the shot and the placement and where the actors will be and when they will do what they're going to do, that's revealed then. And, and that, sets, that sets up, um, you know, uh, my, my approach to having to design the recording of that, of that scene. So uh, once, once I sort of have that roadmap, then I'll establish a, fun, you know, a foundational approach, what's going to be where, beats, you know, um, relationship between the different mics if you know if that's appropriate in the mix and so um i i try not to come predetermined pre with a with an ideology i try to come with a with a palette of tools that will let me sort of you know figure how can i best you know uh, respond to what what we now know is going to be the way quentin's approaching the scene and then then we go from there you know at that point it becomes almost like music you know it's a fluency i think i have a follow-up i, I think because Mark was really discussing how production sound, um, how he relates to the process of production sound and, and, and how that uh, dovetails into to Quentin's uh, desire as a filmmaker to, to, to work through the production process. But I, I, I think as a, just a thought, um, Michael, you know, the, uh, the craft of sound editing is really is is really in transition, and, and people skilled in mixing uh, make some of the best sound editors. Sound editors seem to uh, transition nicely into functioning as great mixers. And so, you know, in terms of sound editing, you know, um, I fully transformed the thought process and my work process. <laughs> we, we we've moved from a, a Hollywood chop shop operation. Uh, you know, into this uh, highly mobile, geographically nonspecific uh, creative team that runs this process, um, you know, in the picture editing room and for the, for the benefit of, of people like Fred and, 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 and Quentin, um, and where we rapidly prototype and, uh, and almost do a process that's uh, equivalent to 3D printing of the soundtrack in order to kind of flush out some of these ideas. And we can, talk, we can talk very specifically about this film, uh, but I think one of the unique things about Quentin Tarantino is that he affords each of us um, and each of these departments within sound to take uh, a stretch and to kind of overlap with one another. And it's, um, uh, we've, we've really enjoyed, uh, the three of us have really enjoyed working together and, uh, and producing the kind of films that have been uh, that people, that the audiences come to know as, as Quentin Tarantino movies. No, I appreciate that. I mean, that insight obviously is unique to you guys' team. It, it doesn't happen. The history that you guys have working together is uniquely, it stands out. I think that the thing that I want to still kind of throw out to you guys is with that scene, with the, uh, the final scene, in terms of your approach, Mark, of on set versus what is obviously in the final cut to me is very much indicative to the storytelling process of Quentin of where the draw the eye and the rhythm that Quentin's doing even uh, the film editor Fred Raskin is helping to introduce into the pacing but I was pleasantly surprised that an, you find an audience cheering versus being just kind of 
you know, it's, it's a pretty violent scene, but yet you find the audience cheering on. And I think so much of that has to deal with the pacing and the tension that you guys are building. So I'd love to maybe understand a little more just about that scene of why you think sonically it's being twisted in a way that many other films, it would be a violent bad guy, good guy scenario. Um, those scenes are captured in production in a very sort of traditional manner. You go shot by shot and you go through and you do those action scenes. But it's the rapid prototyping of the sound effects, the music, and, and the beats to music, where music can capture them, they capture them, where sound effects capture them, they capture them. But it's that rapid prototyping that gives Quentin insight into where to find the comedic uh, balance, where to find the balance in terms of length. And, and it's all created through rhythms that are based on music, they're based on sound design and based on cutting patterns that Quentin and, uh, and Fred Raskin established during this rapid prototyping process. These are not scenes where they struggled with moving frames here and there, one shot to the other, at least not from my point of view. What they do in private is, is, is a process that's, I'm sure, equally as magical as what I do with my team in private. But the process net result comes from this rapid prototyping and 3D printing. So I want to support okay. the bigger the bigger overview is it's a holistic process and at every stage. And so um, the the idea first of all it's it's in the pages. What Quentin is doing is he's establishing the preamble for this kind of payoff so that it pays off as comedy as grand you know kabuki as 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 uh, you know, basically resolution of the malevolence he's set up along the way, starting at the Spawn Ranch when we suddenly transition to the dark, the darkness of of the, of the Manson family and and the implication of where we are, we think we're going, even though that's not where we end up. Uh, that pays off in this scene a hundred percent. And and I and Wiley is being very modest, I think, about something that is I think key, is that his approach is. Is not is not its purely traditional sound editing approach. He's also profoundly holistic in his approach. I I think he deserves credential as 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 a composer for the film, even though we don't have an official composer, because he approaches it orchestrally. He approaches it with um, the, the 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 beats, the tempo, the dynamics. You know, the quiet is as important as the, as, as 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 the loud. This this is sort of a you know, uh, almost a, 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 a uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the climax of the piece musically, not just in terms of, you know, the journey and the, and the arc of the story and the arc of this moment. And, and, and a huge portion of that emotionally comes from the soundtrack that, that is being, uh, you know, assembled around all of the, the elements, the, the field acquired elements are a component, the, added, the, the things that are designed around that after, but it's this holistic idea staying in the overview, staying global so that there's not, you know, one thing shining in a distraction, but all things working together as a whole tapestry. And, and, and Wiley's the master of that. In many ways, a pioneer. I, I, I feel he has opened the door in some ways to how sound can be um, organized around the idea of the story and keeps us with that bigger p principle of storytelling. The oldest thing humans do telling stories. And we're just the generation that are stewards of the modern way of doing that. And, and Wiley is, he's like someone who refers back to, you know, the, 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 you know, uh, masters, the great painting masters, you know, uh, uh, Raphael and Michelangelo. And 
in a context that is about still entertaining. You know, Shakespeare was in popular entertainment at its time, and, and, and nobody at that time thought it would become what it is now, the icon of, you know, Amer- of, 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 of English literature. Um, and, and I think what we're doing here has that kind of sensibility about it, even if it's not overt to the present mind. And, and Wiley, always, there's always that sixth idea, sixth sense, I, I feel, when I hear his tracks you know, in, in a movie. So I, I, I don't know if I'm, you know, saying this in a clear way, but it's, it's, it's essential. No, that's great. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate the, 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 the uh, shout-out. Thank and, you. And, and, I, I, and, it's not a shout-out. It's an observation. I, 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 you know, I, I can't compliment you enough from my heart, but I, I'm, 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 I'm really trying to express an observation over time. What have we done in, in eight, nine, or ten movies together? It's a, it's a, lot, of, sure. a lot of movies. To, and, and this is... This is become clear to me over time as, as I reveal, I go see, I see, I see my work up on the, on the screen. I see Mike's work up on the screen. I see your work up on the screen, but there's this holistic unifying element consistently through all of that. And certainly it, it's, it's, it's sourced from Quentin and his intent and his, his special content for each separate project. But you are uh, well, very articulate in the tools that you, in your instrument. Let me just say it that way. I appreciate that. I just want to just add to that one little thing, which is uh, as opposed to it being a parlor trick, it's really based around patterns and rhythms and, and seeing or hearing sound as music. So the the kind of sound designers that I work with, like I said, uh, Harry Cohen and and Sylvain Lassier and and Leo Marcel, Zach Cohen, these are all people that came from a love of music and then found their their profession and found their craft through bringing that love and music and sense of musical sensibility to what used to be um, to sound editing it's 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 uh, it's evolving in a very lovely way uh, but yep. it's about as mark said storytelling and it's uh, it uses traditional ideas and values but it's uh, the same you know at the end of the day sound is just vibrating paper and and uh, and and that in an auditorium, but it's, it's how that affects emotionally the, the audience and its ability to either advance or play as a, as a partner with the, with the picture process and the, and the, the storytelling process that, that makes film and, and the experience of listening to a film uh, interesting. For you know, my background is music too. I, I have to say, yeah. I'm second generation percussionist, and I come to, to filmmaking with the passion, but with the um, the I, the professional ideology of musicianship. And and so uh, for, for for me, that so is in sync with how my whole sense of approach to the work is. It, it, it's very, again, holistic, organic. You know, it, it's 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 intuitive. You know, when you when you uh, when you do a mix and there's a live performance going on in front of you and you have to uh, assemble uh, dozens, maybe more, hundreds of specific micro moves or changes through that mix, if you stop to think about any one of those, it's too late, you're done. But if mm-hmm. you're influency of your instrument, you're, you're interactive with the performance as you perform. And, and, I, and I think Wiley, he is just, you know, and, and Mike as well, this whole team is around that concept of, Staying inside the moment of the story, whatever moment, whatever moment that happens to be, and then when you step back and you look at it, you go, "It's a whole piece of cloth. It's a, it is a composition. It's a it's a piece of music in its own way." And and um, yeah. it's rare. A lot of people segment 
the, 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 the sound component of their approach to filmmaking. Um, and this, this isn't that. This is, you know, we're playing in the same band. We're on the same score with yeah. the same conductor. In, in, uh, in real, in, it, in, in often in real time. It's like, Mark, you, you operate in real time. Every day on the set, right. there's a new set of, right. of, of challenges. Uh, you know, in the sound editing process, we have the chance to really sit and intellectualize it and, and experiment with things. That's, I, I say rapid prototype, but that's the end result. The real, the real process is hours and hours and hours of tedious work with little bits of elements that come from all kinds of sources. And then Mike Minkler works in real time and during the final mix, you know, it's a performance that he, that he presents to the, the editor and the director. And it's, it's truly a, a beautiful real time thing. And that's how films are finished. You know, there's an art to making uh, movies. There's a, maybe an even lesser known art to finishing them. And this is really the story of that. We're in the sound world, Michael, and it's really hard for most of the universe to get what we do because it's almost invisible. They see the tools that we apply and associate the tools as the work, but the work is, those are hammers and nails, you know, it's, it's like a pair of drumsticks or a saxophone. It, you know, a great musician on an inferior instrument is going to make wonderful music and an inferior musician on a, on a Stradivarius is not going to necessarily move the audience. So in, in this context, it's really about staying connected to the intent and the story and the characters and staying connected with that so that we suspend, we float the audience above the technology into the story. And whenever that happens, the magic of that is, is, is the most rewarding thing that I, I, I don't know about you, Wiley, but for me, is, it, yeah. I, I still am in a wondrous state when you see the work being received by, by people who don't know what to expect and it moves them. That just rocks me, man. It just rocks Exactly. Me. Oh, that's great. Mark, I would love to find out more about your process and also your team, because my understanding is that you guys have worked together for a long time. And I would love to understand a little more about that process and how you guys work together. Um, my department is a very evolved uh, jazz trio, if you will, in terms of uh, my boom operators have been with me, respectively, one for almost 40 years and the other for 20 and so uh, that's Tom Hardig has been with me for 20 years uh, as, as my key boom operator. And Petrushka Mirazwa has been with me for, well, in January, it'll have been 40 years uh, um, uh, working together. And she, she's just come back. You know, we've done this movie. And just before, we have another movie coming out in September, Ad Astra, um, James Gray's movie with uh, Brad Pitt and Donald Sutherland and Tommy Lee Jones. But the, the team aspect is 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 a continuum so we do have that sort of collaborative state not just inside our department on the set between the three of them you know and everyone has enormous you know specialties and talents Petrushka for example is fantastic with wire work she's she's cross-trained she has a degree in fashion so she has this incredible insight into the wardrobe connection and the collaboration with those departments and Tom is a is a mass has a master's degree in film uh film history and film education you know we're all kind of cross-trained in things that are more about the storytelling than anything else. And, um, but our precision is in our, in our particular instruments and how they interact and how we interact with the other departments on the set and in post-production. The, uh, the, the idea of segmenting or compartmentalizing all the steps is, an, is you know, for me, the antithesis of, of the best work. You know, we need to know what we are doing and how it works with what everything else we're interacting with. 
Um, we can't, we're not an island unto ourselves. And, and so that comes back to this idea of the best compliment you can give us is that we're filmmakers. Um, I may play, uh, I may play timpani and Bob Richardson may play first by vi first chair violin. Um, but if we're not playing together, um, the music falls apart, you know, and, and, and technique is interesting. And even, uh, we become somewhat over obsessive on technique, but I'll, I'll quote my father, um, who is a passionate, you know, and significant presence in the percussion world. It doesn't matter if the drummer plays left-handed. <laughs> it's irrelevant. How, how does, does he know where two and four is? Do we, are we making the music? Are we, you know, understanding the overview and, and, and playing our part in the contribution? We're here to contribute, not to compete. And in that way, uh, Quinton sets the table for contribution. As a, he's non-defensive. He invites that contribution from the, the art, art circle he's built around him over the years. And he understands the efficiency, the shorthand that you create when you bring a, uh, a group of, of people who are passionate about their, their particular work together over and over again. And it frees him up to spend the primary focus of his energy on his actors, on the scene, and on the writing and the directing. Um, and and it's, 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 it's a traditional approach for a very unorthodox voice. And it's, uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm with the guy for 25 years, and I, 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 I never have, you know, I work with a lot of people, as has Wiley and Mike. We've had great fortune and acknowledgement in our careers. But, you know, the day-to-day -day working on a film with, with, with Quentin um, is the fulfillment of your maximum potential. And that's the best gift anybody can give you. You're, ex you're expected to rise beyond the past. The past is only interesting in terms of, you know, your family, your kids and all this. But what is the next shot? What are we doing to solve this next thing and not, you know, coming predetermined, but coming open, knowing what we're go where we're going, but not close to the possibilities that, that, that present themselves as you are in performance. And, and just one last point is Wiley's comment about Mike and myself being in real time performance. It's true for almost all of the primary, you know, uh, uh, artists behind the camera on the set. We're interactively performing with the characters in front of, in front of the camera. Um, and basically are a conduit for channeling connection with those characters. That's our real mission is do you believe when you sit and watch a movie and experience the journey that these characters are on and the environment they're, they're experiencing, they're, they're in that journey, do you believe? If you believe, we've done what we're, we're here to do. If you believe, you know, we need to make that possible with, by whatever means. And what I did for this shot, similar to this shot two years ago, isn't what I'm going to repeat here because there's some component that is specific and unique to this one day where we're custom making this handmade shot to fit into this sequence, which fits into the film. And, and th there really is very little else like that, you know, um, uh, out there in terms of, you know, uh, how you experience a creative process. This is other than music. I, I really relate to what we do as a, a musician's journey. That's great. Uh, the, one of the last questions I want to ask you before you wrap up is being someone who's had such a, a wonderful history of collaborating with Quentin. What's your best way of describing that environment? I'll try and keep this short, but uh, uh, there's, there's three points. One is. Uh, and these, these will be, these give, I think these are examples that are, they're significant. There's no video village on Quentin's set. 
Um, you, you can walk on almost any film or television set universally, even on the planet, and you will see there's going to be a video village. There's monitors and recorders and video assists and all the rest of that. Not on his set. And it's not about uh, anything other than the focus for his, his environment for his actors. He sits at the dolly next to the camera in the room with the actors and watches them. And he does so because he trusts his camera department and his sound department to give him the truth of whether or not this succeeded as a take. And so the actors just adore that as an environment. It, the director's not off in some tent watching them on a little TV screen. He's right there with them. And, and, and it's a moment-to-moment -moment thing. It's, it's nurturing, it's support, and it's, 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 it's old school, but it's it, it really effective. And ancillary benefit is that we're not spending 15, 20, 30% of the time doing a playback at $2,500 a minute, <laughs> you know? So he's very efficient. We, we make our day. The second point is when he gets a take that he believes is the right take, it's good. He will say, he will stop in the moment and say, print it. We've got that. And then this is the fame. This is a famous thing that Quint will say constantly, but we're going to do one more. And why are we going to do one more? And the entire crew in unison has evolved to coming back in a loud collective simultaneous cheer because we love making movies. You can listen to, you know, dozens of setups on any one of the shows and they'll be that at the end because I leave the recorder running just for, just just to capture that um and, and and the third thing is the family aspect the reunification of people who have journeyed in the past together and it extends on this film it was amazing how many people had their kids working both in front of and behind the the camera on this set. Our daughter was there, you know, working as a production assistant, uh, as were three or four other, you know, got people. I mean, since, uh, you know, uh, um, Michael, um, uh, the, the, the little Joe and, and the Bonanza, Michael, um, but he had a history on his sets where the people had been with him for decades, you know, and you would, you would have uh, Landon, that's it, Michael Landon. Um, and, and the Quentin had that on this set. There was just this joyous, family environment where, you know, uh, uh, people and, and second generation people were together, coming together to, to experience this unique thing. Um, and and the, the, the one last point is Quentin is not a insecure person. He's comfortable in his own skin when it comes to this work. And the best example of that is he will say, you know, anybody comes up with an idea that's contributory to the scene that we're working on and he uses it, you get five dollars. <laughs> right. He will give you five dollars. Now it's a very high bar to cross, yeah. and it doesn't happen very often. But it's invitational to your best ideas, and you you risking you know getting rejection of an idea if you bring it. But you know that you are welcome to bring it, and that you're not stepping into somebody else's. You know, you're not stepping on somebody's uh, ego issues or toes or whatever. It's he understands the resource of a universe of artists around him in support of his, of his, you know, uh, maestrohood, mm. if you will. You know, he is a maestro. It's 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 kind of that way. But he he doesn't swing a sledgehammer when he does it. Well, Mark Wiley and Michael, thank you guys so much for taking the time to chat about Quentin Tarantino's newest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For anyone who hasn't seen the film, please go check it out. I had the chance of seeing it in uh, 70 millimeter and 35 in digital and both experiences are just so thrilling and so much fun. So thank you guys so much. Thanks for covering the film. Uh, it's, uh, we're all very proud of it and we're happy as hell.
happiest clams that it's connecting with the audience. That's a, that's a great reward.